Alright, ready? Yeah! Good, what's good? Not much, player, what's good? I, I see you're out here taking bold stances today, huh? Yeah, it was hilarious. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even realize I was coming out strong like that in the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> I mean, they asked us, "Do you think great power competition should be the organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy?" And I was like, "Oh, they must just be aggregating or doing some weird poll." I didn't think they were gonna put my picture up there, and so I was just like, "I think the U.S. should strive for cooperation, confidence level ten. Dot dot dot. Disagree. Dot, confidence dot, dot. level ten. <laughs> I gotta say, yeah, I, was, I gotta say though, if you look at the map of the responses, everyone's pretty confident except for this one guy. Uh, Kevin Rudd is the only one that's like number one. Strongly disagree. Confidence level one. Everyone else. Oh yeah, Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd is hilarious, but I guess he's like the former prime minister of Australia, so maybe he's like, I can't be coming out here swinging. Yeah, but I mean, you're not you're not the craziest one. There are a number of people that straight up just say disagree or agree. Confidence level ten. No response. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, one of the best responses was this professor at Georgetown, and he was like, the problem with the question, I guess he did the classic academic thing where he's like, the problem with the question is, um, is the way it's framed. He's like, great power competition is not a strategic goal in and of itself. He's like, he said it's like, oh, it's this guy, David H. Nixon, Nixon, and he's like, Daniel H. Nixon, and he's like, Great power, saying great power competition is the organizing principle is like saying arguing with your neighbors is the organizing principle of your life. <laughs> like, might, he's like, it might be a fact, but for most of us, it's not like a the driving time goal. Yeah, it's not the driving uh, yeah, impetus for action, correct. I mean, he says like a policy goal would be like the emer preventing the emergence of a regional hegemon in Europe or, or a strategy might be containment. He's like, great power competition is neither of those things. But I was thinking that if, if I had really known this was actually a serious thing, I would have actually said something like, I think U.S. policy goal should be managing the transition to a multipolar world um, oh, with okay. peace, peacefully managing the transition to a multipolar world. Okay, so that wasn't, that wasn't a wink at the international then? I mean, it could be a wink at the international, but um, this woman, uh, Kieran, uh, she was the African-American woman who got fired from um, policy planning because she... She might have accidentally said that uh, China was our first great power, non-Caucasian great power competitor. Oh, she, uh, made, she tried Skinner. to run the Mitt Romney line? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She basically tried to run the Mitt Romney line. Now, Kieran Skinner is a professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And she was saying, which I think is interesting, she said that maybe one of the challenges for us is that U.S. foreign policy people still think of it as, and you see it with a lot of the Europeanists who, are, who actually agreed most strongly with the great power uh, framework. She said that actually the, it's the coming of the global south and that the U.S. is trying to deal with the rise of nations like India and China, Vietnam, you know, what happens if there's actually African powers that you have to deal with and that this has been, a you know, this is a challenge for the U.S. I guess it could be like the question of Vietnam, you know, was Vietnam about containing communism or was it about the end of empire and resurgent nationalism? Yeah, I think it kind of ties into the conversation we had about before about like what what does globalism mean at the end of World War II, right? I think maybe we're a little confused because we don't we don't know what the relationship's going to be if it's not purely you know imperial, and <laughs> so, and we kind of ran that for a while. We had this like silent you know imperial structure. I agree, that's essentially what globalism ended up being, just a new name for it for about seventy years, right? And now I think they've woken up. It's a problem, like the global south, as you're calling them. And they're like, maybe we don't want this. Actually, definitely we don't want this. 
And what's up? Let's let's we won in the game. Yeah, I mean, I was just reading yesterday in the Washington Post. They were talking about one of you know how do you assess Trump on something like arms control, nuclear weapon, nuclear arms control, and like the fact that he's signed no new nuclear arms control treaties and is letting them all expire. And on one hand, it makes sense. He's like, you know, the chi- the Russians are cheating. They're building hypersonic gliders. What is a hypersonic nuclear powered hypersonic gliders and shit like that? But I mean, they're trying to get around the American arm control. And then the other question is whether or not uh, China should be in things like New Start. China's trying to double its nuclear warhead size, and you see Iran expand. I mean, not Iran, uh, North Korea expanding. But then there was a little known. There was a little part in the bottom where they were like. Trump has also decided to turn a blind eye to the Saudi nuclear weapon program. And you're like, oh, so I mean, in some ways, it's more and more powers coming in, right? There's this question of, you know, does the non-proliferation treaty hold if New START doesn't hold? And it's kind of goofy, too, let's be honest, because, I mean, that technology is outdated. At this point, the technology is outdated. It basically can't really be deployed without inviting some serious international response. Um, And it's basically a shield. That's really all, all it can be viewed as. Like, you know, a, a bitch, a quote-unquote bitch get off me, right? <laughs> the US is spending a trillion dollars updating our nuclear weapons portfolio. Well, we need to update it. I mean, we can't let it get old. It is pretty old. I think the last time we did this was in the 80s, right? So... Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. They were showing you that they still got the, what do you call it, punch card computers in those silos. Yeah, I mean, they need... Look, you know, I'm not a dove. Let me just say that much. I think we need to have these things quote-unquote, you know, ready to go. But I don't think we're going to, knock on wood, you know, see nuclear weapons deployed in our lifetime in any serious way. It's just not going to happen. It's not. So you don't think we can use the small ones? I remember I was sitting at a, in a hotel bar one time with some dudes who are in the Trump administration right now, and they were telling me that we could use little bombs. But why? In place why don't like you Georgia? use little conventional bombs or drones or all these other technologies that we have now that are so much more precise? Mm. So you don't think there's a... And then I was reading a scary article in the Washington Post the other day. I don't know why I've been reading the Washington Post, which writes some scary stuff. They were like, maybe the Chinese will use little nuclear weapons to clear landing zones in Taiwan. And you're like... It's unclear that that's going to be China's approach to Taiwan. I don't think they want like a physical presence. I think they're going to try to strangle them economically. Basically just surround them economically and and subdue them that way, right? Like give them no Mm -hmm. other choice but to submit. I mean, they're, I they're, the Chinese goal is to tie the Taiwanese into the Chinese system to the point where Taiwan can't really separate. I mean, that was the goal with America, too. But it seems like that's not might not work out the way they thought. Well, I guess that's what that's what I think is the underlying issue. I mean, let's be honest. They didn't they didn't ask us and they asked my professor. It was kind of funny to be on a panel with people that taught you freshman international relations like Robert Jervis. All these people were there, too. I mean, they're not asking us about great power competition for nothing. Right. I mean. I think there's a fear in the United States, or not a fear. There seems to be an idea that, right, this idea that we were going to be able to intertangle with each other um, has kind of dissipated, right? The idea that we were going to be able to make the Chinese rich, prosperous, and non-threatening, we seem to have given up on that. Was that, was that something we were saying over here? <laughs> I think that was the American ideal, right, is that the Chinese would become rich, prosperous. Remember back in the 90s when we used to have this McDonald's theory of international relations? No two countries that have McDonald's in them have ever gone to war. Yeah, but I never thought China was part of the promise. Does China have McDonald's? Yeah, yeah, China has McDonald's. China's the biggest market for KFC. KFC is a McDonald's, for sure. That's true. But I think China has a lot of McDonald's. And, you know, the idea, and then 
Now it's interesting because there's also been a bigger push by Wall Street into China in the last year or two. JP Morgan finally opened his fully owned brokerage house there. Uh, Citibank is back. Goldman, well, of course, has a China bug. Within five to ten years, it's going to be the world's largest economy. So, of course, they want to be in the market. And they want to find a way to get their hooks in there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they definitely want to get their hooks. But, I mean, I guess the idea, the more serious idea than the Goldman, I mean, than the McDonald's idea would have been that once markets become intertwined, you can't go to war. And I think, uh, I don't know if it was you that, that was saying this before. I think when we saw them kick Google out of China, we knew something was done with that whole McDonald's promise, right? <laughs> so like, you think the McDonald's promise came to an end around 2010, 2011, it was over. It's like, sure, we'll eat your food, but we clearly have different realities. Like, we're going to have different sources of information, and I, we need you guys to understand that. Like, we're not going to mm. let you come in here and actually influence us culturally that strongly. Sorry. Mm. I mean, I guess that goes into one of the big questions of, like, one of, I think, the strongest American complaints against China is that they're a propaganda state, right? That the Chinese government is, is, is exercising enormous amounts of uh, propaganda, information, mind control on its own population. But I guess the fact that China chose Google, for instance, as something to shut down in Facebook, does that mean that they think that those are our tools of mind control? I mean, some of our tools of mind control. I mean, I think it's undeniable that, you know, there's some of that going on here. Maybe not quite as organized on the state level. Maybe not with quite as uh, allegedly a noble goal. Right. And I think that's what makes it so different in some ways and kind of interesting at this point in time. Like I'm someone that's very surprised I'm saying this. OK, but I think at this point in time, it's like we're kind of crossed over to be on the other side of the looking glass. Right. Like which which system is worse? I mean, is, is it the panopticon that's trying to allegedly make everyone's life better and improve your life or the one that's just trying to sell you crap? <laughs> well, I thought the funniest thing was when Mike Lee uh, jumped out there and said, democracy is not that important, right? Senator Mike Lee recently, and he was like, we're out here for the prosperity of humanity, or what does he say, the, the human soul? And I was like, that sounds like some straight, like, USSR type stuff. Yeah, but he's also kind of right. He's, he's true insofar as that the United States was not intended to be a democracy. That, that was not the, there were serious, cons, you know, concerns. I don't think that was ever really the goal of anyone. You mean the whole republic versus democracy argument? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we are a republic. I mean, it's not wrong. Yeah, but I mean, but it was just interesting to see it as like, you're kind of like, that's exactly what the Soviet Union would have said, right? They would have been like, we're out here for the prosperity of the human race. You know, it's like from the straight from the spy movie. And so you're kind of like, once you say that, you're kind of suggesting that there's like a big brother that knows better, which I thought was supposed to be not what we're doing, right? I thought that's like what we think the Chinese are doing and not us. I mean, it's definitely what the Chinese are doing. I, I think... The funny thing is it's almost aspirational. They're almost saying as if it's, you know, they're pretending that's what we're doing, but we actually know we're not doing that. We're just trying to make you pay extra 20 cents for a soda. You know? <laughs> it's like, that's the, to me, that's, you guys the, the, that's the sad part. The idea that you get to choose between Coke and Pepsi? Yeah. I mean, it's like my friend told me, like, you know, don't get too, don't be too idealistic. You know, idealism is, is the death of sales, right? I think, I think that's the... The theory here is that, you know, we're just trying to sell stuff. So how bad can it get? I mean, we see how bad it can get now with what we got sold. Like maybe you get sold, you maybe get sold Donald Trump and all this other crazy shit along with your 20 cents, you know? Um, and maybe, maybe, I'm just saying as someone, you know, from the software, the security side, someone that thinks about this a lot, maybe there should be more thought put it to it, maybe not the same way as the Chinese, 
but in how these technologies do influence us and, and what and how we are using them, right, to shape culture, whether it's uh, overt or not. Yeah, I was on an interesting uh, discussion last night with some of the software engineers and some tech guys, a bunch of disgruntled people in California thinking about moving to Austin so they don't have to pay any taxes. But one of the, the things that came up was this question of whether or not, I mean, there was a lot of attack on this forum about Bernie Bros. They were like, oh, can you believe those guys? It's just state socialism, yada, yada, yada. But one of the things I was surprised about in the taxation question is that a lot of them were like, look, we're already paying 17% income tax here in, um, in Cali. You know, we're paying huge federal, they think they're paying huge federal capital gains taxes, though I don't know how huge they are. 50%. Uh, they're paying 15%. That's what they're paying. Yeah, they, in their mind, they're paying huge. I mean, they keep telling me they're paying like 70% all the time. I mean, one of the things that scares me the most, I think, about like the Biden victory is I wonder if Biden's going to come to power without having solved any of the relevant problems or without any consensus within the party about any of the relevant issues. So like, you know, on foreign policy, you get this question of whether or not we should be doing this great struggle, great containment with China, which I don't think is at all solved within their Democratic Party. And then on other issues like taxation, for instance, I think all the people I was on the telephone call with or on this in this meeting room with would consider themselves Democrats, right? But I was just surprised by the extent to which, I mean, their class, they have the classic argument that you've been telling me about, right? Which is the, the fairly wealthy, I think really wealthy, who see themselves sitting next to what they consider to be the extremely wealthy. And they're like, we're not nearly as wealthy as them. And I'm like, look, you're telling me you might make like 20 million next year. I think you're pretty wealthy. But they're like, but this other person is making a billy. And so I'm just a humble servant. And they're like, we're the ones who are taxed. So they were all like VC, VCs, venture capitalists are overtaxed, which I was like, this seems kind of absurd to be making this argument. But they're like, us venture capitalists aren't like the owners of Amazon. We're not like Bezos. And then their big argument was that Bezos and Amazon, the big companies, Google, Apple, they're like, they're not paying any taxes. So they're like, if we talk about raising taxes, we're just hurting what they call the innovator. The smart businessman. I remember watching this like old thing back in like elementary school where they told us that this was going to happen, actually, if we kept with the current policies. I don't know if it was like a democratic piece of propaganda for elementary school kids, but I remember there was this economist that came out and he was talking about this thing called the uh, the Bud Vase economy. <laughs> this guy, Paul Solomon. And a lot of people don't understand this concept is the fact that there used to be like this, you know, pyramidal shaped economy. And then, you know, we had the expansion of the middle class after World War II. We had this like almost diamond shaped, if even slightly jilted diamond shaped economy where we had this, you know, we had wealthy, but it was still, you know, strided. Like you pretty much knew where you stand, stood. But now we've got this thing where you have this bud vase. So people on the top are pulling further and further and further and further apart. And there are just so many types of rich. There's... There's, you know, 100 millionaires, 10 millionaires, you know, small billionaires, big billionaires. It's, it's, it's all, they're all very wealthy. They're all, in, in terms of the normal consumer economy, frankly, they're the ones propping it up right now between their trade activity and their domestic purchasing, right? They're doing the, the bulk of it. And, and so when the economy shifts in this fashion, there's a, a few things that happens. One, you get this weird envy between the wealth classes, like you're saying, because you're like, well, this guy works less than me or more than me, and for depending on how you see the economy, has more money than me, right? And so there's a lot of that going on, this value uh, inequity, right, that, that people are really confused about. And on the other side, 
it's very, it becomes politically very dangerous because they don't understand the cost to the average consumer because they're, they're so well beyond what the average person's making because we know real wages have stagnated or gone, purchasing power has actually gone down since the 70s, right? For the average, average person. And so then basically your middle class is, I think it's, I personally think it's dead. I don't think it exists anymore. Like maybe there are a few people, I mean, maybe you and I are middle class. Maybe that's what the middle class is now. But if that's so, that's a grim, grim future <laughs> for America, man. That's not I think right. you and I are middle class, but we're also sort of in these weird protected spaces of the intelligentsia, right? We're like, uh, we're like, you know, the, the few, we're poorly, we're maybe slightly underpaid professional. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. But we're in this like weird professional space where we provide services. But I guess the question is, who are we providing services to? And so like for someone like me who was like, I guess, an educator, actually an educator at a public university. The question is like, who am I actually providing my services to? Like, is the University of California system providing services to a middle class or are we... Actually, increasingly, we're providing services to the wealthy, the global wealthy and the national wealthy. Yeah, I mean, I think with the shift in the economy, it's just naturally going to be the wealthy because you just get so many advantages. That's I mean, that's it's just simple. It's going to be more shifted. And that's why redistribution is important for the growth of any society. But that's my, you know, my education. This guy who I would otherwise disagree with did bring up a good point, which is like, why should we pay taxes if, you know, Lockheed Martin isn't paying taxes, or his his example was Chase. And he's like, what Chase does isn't, he was like, basically they're just regulatory arbiters, right? They like, you know, they create regulations. They basically regulate markets in a way that the government, you know, itself doesn't do directly. It does it now through these companies. He was like, they don't really take risks. But I think that's the problem, right? Since the government has basically, you know, completely skewed its responsibility, respond, you know, respect to that, they're, they're the only ones that can do it. You know, that's, I think that's where the concept of too big to fail comes from. Mm-hmm. Basically, the government saying that, hey, we're not going to do this. Like, we, we think it's unethical on both sides, frankly, to put our fingers on the scale in that way. Right? So we're not going to do this. And we're just going to let the banks, because you guys are known for being so fair and, you know, just and, <laughs> and equitable to everyone. Trustworthy. Yeah, trustworthy. We're going to let you guys do it. And when you screw up, we're going to give you zero interest loans for as long as you need to get things right. Okay. I mean, it's almost like the Ottoman system, Ottoman Empire system of tax farming, where it's like, uh, we've decided this province is a bit too troublesome, so we're going to give you a license and tell you to manage it and just, you know, report back. Yeah. And just, just any problems. Yeah, holler at Actually, us. don't it's report like, back. Yeah, it's like Game of Thrones. I know you're not a big Game of Thrones guy, but it's like when they make Tyrion, Tyrion the uh, master of coin, and he's like, wait, we don't have any money. We've been, we've been borrowing it from everyone. We're, we're dead broke, and there's no gold in the mines. And they're like... Well, if we didn't think you could figure it out, we wouldn't have given you this job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's exactly what's happening with things like Chase, right? It's like, hey, Jamie, we don't really know what the hell is going on out there, but we think maybe you can figure it out. Yeah, because we're not touching it, just to make it clear. Like, we're not going anywhere near that shit. So don't even think you're going to be asking us to do it. Just FYI. Don't ask us to figure out what the home loan should be or the credit cards. And and clearly the government... Clearly, the government needs to be regulating those guys. And that's why, you know, once again, not to sound like I'm being a dead horse here, I'd like to trace the real history of the success of neoliberalism back to the Clintons. The repeal of Glass-Steagall was, it changed the entire world. And there was, it, was a, it was this weird deal where they're like, hey, you know, we're going to, they should have basically said that there's going to be more inequality. They're like, hey, there's going to be a bigger pie, but don't worry, middle class, since the pie is bigger, you're going to get a smaller share, 
but it's going to be more all together. And so you're fine. That's like the principle of trickle down, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the classic neoliberal argument, right? Is that inequality in and of itself doesn't matter. But it was another, it was just a rephrasing of the trickle down economics argument. And we, for some reason, when they said that, we, we didn't properly acknowledge it and, and until now. And everyone's looking back like, wait a second, that looks like the exact same thing that, that Reagan was saying. And they're right. It is. I guess Bill Clinton represented Reagan's takeover of the Democratic Party. Yeah. I agree. And the idea was that, right, you would create these, because I mean, the idea for uh, Robert Rubin and them was that you would create these sort of huge banks that would be, that exactly what you're saying, would, would perform functions of the state, both domestically and internationally, and therefore, and would also be unaccountable to democratic processes because technically they're private entities. But, but that's, that's clearly coordinated at the highest level. Yeah, but that's clearly a threat to national security, no? I mean, that's not good. Well, I mean, I guess Robert Rubin and them thought it wasn't a threat because they were like, we'll both be in the government and in the companies. And so through our own individual. Well, they're like, yeah, not, not to our national security. That's probably how they would phrase it, you know, maybe <laughs> <laughs> someone else's national security. <laughs> and they also thought you could do global cooperation there. So the idea was that, right, you could have like a senior Saudi finance minister sit on the global governance board. You could have, you know, a representative from Japan. Uh, maybe somebody from the Chinese, what do they call it? the people's peoples of China central bank sit on these boards, and you could just make big decisions that way, right? Out of the outside of the spotlight of democratic governance. That's the American way. Right? Try to reduce oversight as much as possible in search of some sort of solution. You're like, hey, well, maybe our laws don't quite allow us to do this directly, but maybe if we put it in the private space, then we can just litigate it later. Yeah, we can do whatever, right? Mm. But I think it raises another question, which I thought was interesting. If you take if you take the arguments of these guys on on this app seriously, right? These guys in the tech space, a lot of them are in blockchain. Seriously, I was wondering if it does bring up the question of the Chinese solution, which is the existence of state-owned enterprise. What extent? At what at what point does something like you know maybe something like Chase shouldn't actually be paying taxes because it's actually performing governmental functions, right? And you don't ask the like you don't really ask like HUD the Department of Housing and Urban Development to pay taxes, right? And if you think of Chase as something like a, a, a department of the state, then maybe the problem is, is that we haven't acknowledged that it's a state-owned enterprise and that there's actually a different mechanism of control that should be exercised. Except that the state doesn't make profit. So they'd have to kick their profits back to the American people. And that, yeah, that so would... maybe the state should be shareholders of these companies. Like the state well, they, should actually be they, they shareholders. They tried that, though, but it just was an imperfectly written law. Yeah, I mean, they tried briefly after the financial crisis, but I feel like the U.S. system has been, U.S. political classes have very nervous about the idea of the state maintaining long-term positions in companies like Boeing and Chase and Bank of America. But these are companies, or Google, right? These are companies in which there's actually no real competition, right? And they perform sort of quasi-governmental functions. So, I was, so I've been wondering whether or not the state, instead of seeking to tax them, should actually be seeking to be shareholders in these companies. I mean, that'd be the same thing, but through a different mechanism. I mean, that's actually one of the the, the main instruments, right, being pushed by the social Democrats, like uh, AOC and Bernie. I mean, that's what he says we should do. He says we should start buying shares of these companies, buy it back every time we bail them out, right? Every time and keep a record of it and, and pay the American people out. And that would pay for social services. I mean, they have plans that already show this. Um, I mean, in a way, like Trump's argument about uh, Bezos in the post office is kind of interesting. The question is, like, you know, if we do think that Bezos is unfairly using the post office, should that entitle the American people to a certain amount of shares of Amazon? 
He's paying the post office, though. He's well, not that might be f- true. The problem is that Bezos might be buying the post office instead of us buying Amazon. Yeah, I mean, he's basically support. He's one of the single-handed reasons the post office is near solvent right now because how much they use it. Like, he's good for the post. Post office loves Amazon. Trust me, they don't have any problem with Amazon. Trump has a problem with the post office, so he just tries to blame it on Jeff Bezos. But that's not how. <laughs> but that's not how it works. You know, you're saying that's a different problem. That's a problem with with the Republicans and their question about whether or not we should be doing any voting. Yeah, they want everyone to pay FedEx rates. We're getting twenty dollars to mail a letter across the street. You know, like no, I'm not doing. So that. you think the state-owned enterprise question is really just like a social democratic question? Like that's not where our beef with the Chinese should be. That's really a question of like you know, if America wasn't so center right or right, we actually would see state-owned enterprises as a legitimate form of uh, political entity. Or other, economic how about this? Management. Other other center right governments don't seem to think that's a problem. Just I guess Germany. Germany is the main one. That's what I was talking about. They don't have a problem with that at all. And they seem <laughs> so to be maybe the, and, our and they're so and they're so good at center right. Yeah, they're so good at managing books. Basically, the rest of Europe except for Britain's like you can manage the books now. We're good. <laughs> well, the British are onto some pirate stuff. They're like, we can't be doing this. We have our own uh, club. Well, the Brits are like, maybe you manage the books a little too good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Brits are like, we like our Lloyd's of London system where we have like a little. A little cheese sandwich and a, and a spiked tea in the morning. And we decide whether or not we made any gains or losses today. Remember when the Germans went to the Greeks and they were like, look, we know you guys are cheating us on the taxes because we took some satellite photos and we measured how big your swimming pools are. That was awesome, actually. <laughs> They're like, you guys have been much like 25% more active than you were last quarter. We think you owe us some money, players. Someone, <laughs> someone's got some money. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> The Germans are like Rihanna. They're like, bitch, better have my money. I see you, fool. The, the, you I know. mean, maybe that's what we're scared about the Chinese about, too, because right? they might do that bitch better have my money stuff, too. They're like, we can see you using uh, Aunt Alipay, and we see that you've been moving the money around, and we were wondering. Actually, they're like, we weren't wondering. We already withdrew what we think is the estimated taxes from your account. You know, our boy has an interesting tweet he just put up. I, I think I should need to mention. He says, uh, this is a prof- owner... He, uh, he says, my controversial take of the year, in the parallel universe where Clinton is the president, the outcome of the Apollo response to the pandemic would not have been much better. I mean, do you agree or disagree? I mean, you know me, I actually don't like, funny enough, as someone that actually does do forecasting a little, I don't, I don't like to engage in this kind of like uh, retrospective subjunctivism, like, you know, historical, I don't know, fantasy. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> because the conditions change, right? The, the conditions for Clinton would have been different than the conditions for Trump, and she would have had the House and all this stuff. Who knows? I also think if Clinton wins, which is in a fantastical world, we probably have the Senate, too. And so it's like a weird... Those things tend to work. Oh, so you think it would have been a sweep? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Clinton would have won the Senate, the House, and you think she would have maintained it for four years, or she would have lost massively in 2018? Well, I think... Well, it depends on how what she would have done in those first two years, I think. Hmm. I think I think just the thing about Hillary is she in particular was so unlikable that she actually wasn't able to pull the you know the down ballot candidates with her as as we as we needed and we kind of expected. Um, but we did get a surge in twenty eighteen, so there was that. We did very well. Mm. But it was actually the progressives mostly. Progress. It was strange. Two groups. It was progressives and the uh, like kind of center center did very well. In, in 2018. I guess there's an alternate universe, right, in which, and this is, a, this is a take that I don't know if a lot of people agree with me on, but, you know, you saw the emergence of Black Lives Matter and things like that under the last few years of Obama, right? And you saw, you know, under Democratic leadership, you started to see the progressive wing of the party 
in some ways get stronger and stronger and realize that it had diff significant differences with the moderate wing of the party. And I yeah. guess the question is, would that trend, I mean, in some ways, I guess it's very plausible that those trends would have continued and maybe even accelerated under Hillary uh, presidency. And Hillary herself might have been, except for in matters of maybe foreign policy, to the left of Obama, significantly to the left of Obama already. And so, I mean, you know, perhaps I'm, there would have been a significant permissiveness, permissivism. Oh, and she would have gotten the three Supreme Court justices. Oh, yeah, they would have all sat down for her. She would have gotten all of them. Well, Kennedy might have stayed, I guess. Well, because what he was bought. I mean, well, that's true. I clearly, that should have been entity of Deutsche Bank. illegal, what they did, honestly. That was so effed up. Like, I don't even get me started on that. That's ridiculous. I mean, they literally bought that seat. Like, like, like the definition of a shady background deal is, is, is what that One was. One of the funniest things I saw on TPM, uh, not to get too far away, a talking points memo was this question of whether or not Roberts might be able to be persuaded to resign under a Biden administration and give up his seat, restoring the 5-4, in order to not have um, an expansion of the court or significant judicial reform. Wait, who would it be? Uh, Roberts. Well, that's not going to happen. Why would he do it? He's so young. Yeah, they were saying Roberts is only 62, but perhaps he would rather give up his seat than have the Democrats argue for judicial reform, which I think uh, I don't always agree with Josh Marshall, but... I think he was like, we got to stop saying court packing. He was like, there's no reason that Democrats should ever use the term court packing. We should call it judicial reform. The problem is they, they started the court packing term for what the Republicans were doing, right, in the civil courts and district courts and appeals courts, right, all, all the other federal courts around the country. Um, so they're kind of stuck with the term. I actually, I don't know. I think court packing is a little bit more honest than judicial reform, to be honest. I mean, I guess judicial reform is, is kind of vague. Yeah, it's very vague. It doesn't really express what you're trying to do. If you're going to do it, just do it. Say we're going to do it. Mm. I mean, so I, I think we should be shy. I guess there are a lot of things that we could do. One of them is, like, impose term limit. Well, I think I actually think we should have been really shy with it. I think we should have kept that shit to ourselves until we won and then just done it. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I think... I don't think I, I don't, have no reason to talk about it. Yeah, I don't think it's something people vote on either. I don't think people are like, ooh, packing the courts. Let's go vote for packing the courts. It's not like... A mobilizing statement, right? But I mean, are people voting on the courts anyway? Like, yes. are people? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, centrist. like, excited? oh, that's that's the strongest argument. All of at least down here, the southern centrist that I know that you know think some reason that I'm going to vote for Trump. I don't know why they think this, but they 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 keep telling me, well, you have to vote because of the court. You know, RBG, the court, and now RBG died. They really didn't like that. That a lot of them have really, you know, got some people. Uh, so they're voting on abortion rights and the right to choose and things like that. Gay rights, abortion rights. You know, th that kind of stuff. I guess that's what keeps part of the party together, right? I mean, I guess that's what keeps these, like, Silicon Valley millionaires in the party, right? They, all, they really strongly believe in, like, LGBTQ rights. They believe in the right to choose. Yeah. Th those are, those are like, our... Economically, they don't necessarily... They should be Republican. Yeah, their worldview is Republican, but they believe in civil rights, basically. Mm -hmm. Classic Republican. Like, I don't know where we... You know, I think the Republicans now are something different. We can just call them... Trumpians, right? Because I guess a classic Rockefeller Republican should be, I believe in civil rights, but I just don't want to pay any tax. Actually, I believe in, in civil rights really strongly. I'm a liberal, like a classic liberal, right? I believe the government should stay the hell out of... Because Roe v. Wade is a classic liberal de decision, right? It's like the government should stay the hell out of the doctor's office. Correct. It's not even like... I guess what's interesting is, it, is it's not a particularly like democratic socialist or progressive decision, right? It's a it's liberally designed about property rights, privacy, uh, 
you know, the same kind of arguments that you could use for something like blockchain, right? Which is like, because I was listening to these guys talk about blockchain and they were like, you know, basically their argument is that I should have the right to move my money. I shouldn't have to put it in the banks. I don't think we should have to go through the SEC. I mean, they're doing these really complicated things to get around the SEC. And they want to basically be able to move their money to any internationally, right? So they're like, the government shouldn't be able to tell me that I can't move my money in and out of Venezuela. I should be able to use these tokens and they should just be like, get off my back. Which I guess you could see as being very consistent with Roe v. Wade. The government shouldn't be able to tell me what kind of medical advice I should receive. I should be able to make this contract and perform these services with my doctor in the privacy of our office. Yes, and it's none of your business. Yeah, it's none of your business. Yeah, it's literally not your business. And so I guess what's interesting is the decision that the Republican Party took to be like, it is our business. And like, once you take that, it's kind of like, maybe you guys aren't liberals anymore. And that's what I was telling you, because you, you know, you were telling me that, you know, maybe one of the things that will happen over Biden is we'll make Roe versus Wade national law. And I'm like, that's fine. But then maybe you need to be prepared for if they get this Republican court, maybe abortion just being illegal nationally, because I don't think that they're concerned with the the reasoning behind the law anymore. Like, I don't think they're liberals anymore. I think this is a real point in the Republican Mm -hmm. Party. They used to be liberals. I agree with you. They're not. I don't think they're any law. Look look at the way they talk about liberals. That's like. So you think now they're authoritarians? I don't know. There's this thing saying that. No, they're anti. They're anti authoritarians right is the funny thing right like they're they're like we're not wearing a mask because you can't tell us what to do right but then they all like salute trump when he walks out it's it's very strange but it's like the concept that they're like anti-author like they're living things the right way and they're not going to listen to you you know they're not going to be plugged into the matrix oh yeah i mean they all believe in this matrix thing i see this a lot it's funny because the other tweet that owner put out was this question somebody called acb a wahhabi which i don't think is really helpful but the other tweet that, uh, I, mean, I mean, I feel like it's like one of those things where it's like a misunderstanding of what Wahhabism is. It's a misunderstanding of like Catholicism. You know, it's just, it's just like not helping anybody with anything. But I don't also don't like this idea that like people, whenever they want to say something like, what have they been calling people? Christian ISIS and stuff like that. You're like, oh, I don't know if this is really. Yeah, you're combining you know, two things that don't quite mix. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um. But Oner was making this point, I mean, which I guess I often make too, which is that you do see certain parallels, right, within uh, what we might call um, fundamentalist or or reformist movements in like the early and mid 20th century across religious divides, right, which is this divide between traditionalism and modernity, this question of whether or not modernity is something to be as a threat, Um, this idea of the matrix. You know, there's this idea that, you know, we see the real way. We don't have to plug ourselves into the matrix. Mm. I was somewhere and somebody was telling me, oh, it was in Target one time. And this guy I know was telling me, he's like, look, see these ads in Target? They're telling us, uh, they're promoting the feminization of the family. And I'm like, oh, snaps, is this really happening? You know, there's this undercurrent of men's rights out there that you get everywhere from like, uh, from black nationalists to like, uh, super conservative white white extremists and you're like where are you guys getting all this stuff and they all listen to each other yeah so like the, in... the concept of submission like and how yeah. like, how you cannot submit like that article about Trump was saying like you know he cannot submit to COVID and he has to show his masculinity by never submitting yeah I was in Kashmir last summer and somebody was telling me they've been listening to T.D. Jakes and I'm like this Muslim guy was like yeah T.D. Jakes has a lot of great things to say about women <laughs> you're like oh yeah 
It's an international of like, you know, Jordan Peterson, non-submission. I guess, yeah, you can't submit to COVID because that would be to submit to a false god. And there's only one god. I mean, it's, it's lunacy, right? Mm, but but what I wanted to ask is if you're in a covenant thing, right? Like, like, I don't know anything. And I'm worried. I think that Biden has done a pretty good job of not falling into the trap that Dianne Feinstein fell into uh, earlier, which is like trying to turn it into some kind of like religious exoticism vis-a-vis um, vis-a-vis Judge Barrett. Um, you know, like I don't think there's much to be gained by being like, oh, she can't be on the Supreme Court because she, she's a member of a spooky group, people of praise. But the one thing I am kind of confused about, well, maybe I mean, about it's, the movement more. It's also legit unconstitutional. Like you cannot have a religious test. Period. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's maybe a bridge too far. And I guess that's what he was trying to say when he was stuttering about Mormons. I guess he was trying to say, you know, I contested uh, Romney, but I, no, know, his Mormonism is by the by. That was a senior moment. But yeah, I think he was kind of <laughs> maybe, maybe trying to say that too. <laughs> I mean, he was also having a senior moment, but you know. <laughs> I mean, I guess McCain did it too, right? I mean, you know, when McCain said, you know, you guys can't boo Obama just because he's a crypto Muslim. First of all, he's not a crypto Muslim, but you know, even if he was like, you know, this is not where we're going right now. But if you're in a covenant society, shouldn't you be a classic liberal? Like, I don't understand. Like, like the idea that religious groups can form their own contracts to govern, self-govern themselves, then shouldn't the state basically be in the business of leaving those groups alone? Correct. Unless you're from one of these, you know, evangelical sects. I don't want to, you know, hit on anyone's religion too hard, but you know. See Calvinism, etc. I think some of these people have a little bit uh, deeper beliefs on what it means to be righteous and what their duty is as a righteous servant of the Lord, etc., etc. And I, I think that uh, you know it leads to some double speak. Like sure, but maybe they think only for their ideas, not yours. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you mean like in part they have a <clears throat> they would say that we have an obligation. Uh... I guess Michael Cook put this out as an idea. He says this is in Islam. He's like a big professor of Islamic studies at Princeton. He's like, you know, there's also an idea of commanding right and forbidding wrong. And I guess like, so you're saying that somebody like ACB might feel that she, or not, let's, you know, if you're in a covenant society, you might feel that, you know, you've withdrawn from that society in order to create a society that's righteous. But your job, your mission is to go back onto the world and to command others to the righteousness. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of people believe that to some extent or another. I think that might be part of the problem, right? <laughs> Everyone has a little bit of that. Everyone thinks they're a little right. And, you know, maybe some people find a little bit more of an impetus to uh, to impose this worldview on others, you know? But is that, the, is that the moral of the Matrix? That you've seen, you know, you've taken the red pill, you've seen the, you've seen, you've seen the truth, and now you have to go back and try to rescue everybody else? Well, that was his fate. The Matrix also has this, all this weird kind of religiosity, like Jesus after crucifixion stuff going on. Like, is he coming back to save their souls? And like, his de- you know, is that a death? And the question of immortality. Like, there's a lot going on there in The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, it's like, his, it's like his fate. It's like his obligation, right? He can't just be like, yo, I've seen through the red pill. Everybody else is sleeping, but they seem kind of happy and dumb. I'll just leave him here. Though it took other people to wake them up, and there are other people that are already woke, right? Mm. That for whatever reason can't seem to do it because they're not Keanu Reeves. So I mean, I don't know. 
You're saying we shouldn't boil everything down to the major. I'm just saying that maybe these, you're right, these ideas are kind of pervasive in American society, right? That, that it's not enough to simply create a society that's righteous alone. You also have to try to make America more righteous, more perfect, right? Yeah, sure. And, and to be fair to her, uh, you know, I watched a little bit of the hearings yesterday and today, and she gave a few good answers. I mean, with respect to this question of, you know, some of her writings and theorizing, she straight up said, she's like, look, I just, you know, I want you guys to know that there's a big difference between, like, me, me writing a hypothetical paper about the theory of how I think things should be and the ruling that I'd make on the bench as a judge that has to review precedent. She's like, they're not the same thing. Like, academic writing on a subject is not the same thing as how you act in the courtroom. And I thought that was a very good, you know, answer from her, just to be frank. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't scare me that much. I'll be honest. I don't think she's a big deal, right? I don't think in and of herself, ACB is like a particularly... Uh, I mean, sure, she's not the judge that a Democratic Senate majority or a Democratic president would have appointed, right? But she doesn't seem to be a particularly bad Republican judge, right? Especially if you... And I think if you're going to attack it, you dig into these questions about, like, is it wrong to be an incredibly devout judge? Is it... I mean, there are, like, maybe precedents that the, Repub the Democrats should bring up, right? Which is, like, you know, will she strike down the Affordable Care Act? Will she, you know, deregulate business? What was her role in Gore versus Bush or Bush versus Gore? Um... You know, these kind of things, but I don't know if those are, uh, that they rise to the point where you can be like she's disqualified from sitting on the, the bench. Yeah, and I guess to me, this is, might be a personal bias because of life experience. I think there are also this concept that's, you know, that I think should exist in politics, but maybe it doesn't. The concept of, you know, fair play. And I think, uh, you know, both sides clearly run afoul of it all the time. But I think the Democrats are in a little bit of a panic because they feel like basically the Republicans got lucky and they're getting a seat that they, quote unquote, don't deserve. Uh, they, they, they know that it's going to happen. They know that if they had the same position, that they would do the same thing. Let's be honest. It is. It is. Let's, that's what would happen. But they just got unlucky. They didn't have the Senate and the president last time. And now the Republicans do. I mean, and the Republicans have to nominate her. They have no choice. Of course they're going to put her on the court. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats got a bad hand. Yeah, that's it. They got a bad hand. I guess the question for them is, like, how far down do they go? And then I, I kind of feel like the Kavanaugh hearing has also destroyed whatever decorum there was left. But maybe it didn't matter. Maybe it's just part of the game, right? You just play, players have to play. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question of whether or not the Dems could get more people on the bench is a big one. I think the Dems have to pursue judicial reform, which is that maybe... I think they first, honestly, I think they should go for term limits first, which is something maybe Republicans will go for. And then... I think it should be term limits. I, I think there's no reason that justices uh, should be on the court for life. I think that's our best chance of getting justices on there that can change possibly some other things, too. Like, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. But I think we start to start with term limits. I, I think it's very dangerous to start packing the court because that's like banana republic shit. Because then what happens if Trump wins, you know, in November and he decides to pre-pack the court, which he's already hinted that he might do if they keep talking this nonsense. So then maybe what if he adds five more judges just off top? Now what? Now you're trapped in and a I guess you're in a thing where you could have 100 judges on the Supreme Court. Yeah, welcome. I guess you could you could raise all the appellate judges and make them all Supreme Court justices. See what I'm saying? And now what? Now, So now we don't have a Supreme Court, which you said might now not be the worst thing in the world. Court. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Or maybe you have a super active Supreme Court, because maybe now they can just start hearing all kind of stuff, because they got time well, for That's what everything. my friend said. He was like, if you expand the Supreme Court, you might act. He was like, many Democrats are thinking about expanding the Supreme Court as a way of diminishing their power, but perversely, it might actually make the court stronger because it would make the court, it would increase the expertise levels available to the court, and it would make the court able to intervene and do all sorts of things. That Correct. It would increase their throughput. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Mm -hmm. And they would be like, oh, I just happened to be an IP lawyer. I mean, expert. I was on the Ninth Circuit. Now I'm on the Supreme yeah, Court. Exactly. The, the willingness to, to hear all these different types of cases due to personal interest and experience is going to be wild. You know? So, you know, I'm really against the idea. I think nine is a good number. I think if the Democrats really want to wild out, they could bring it to 11 or something and just call it even. I think if you do something more than that, then you really start pulling at the strings of, of, of stability, which I think we're already at the, you know, the precipice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... I think you're right. I think term limits should be done. I think there maybe could be some questions about what types of cases the Supreme Court should be hearing. I feel like Congress I mean, they get to decide that. has actually become very weaker, has become quite weak. And there needs to be some serious thought into what, what Congress should be doing. Oh, well, definitely. More. <laughs> Congress is the least popular... Uh, least productive branch and the... And they're super the unpopular. Game. Like, everyone hates Congress. You, like, question anyone about it. They're like, oh, yeah, they do nothing. All they do is fight and cause trouble. I mean, I guess they do appropriations, which I guess are super annoying. Mm. Yeah, how come, they can't uh, how come they can't appropriate another stimulus bill right now? That's hilarious. I mean, that's scary. Politics, that they have man. To put through another stimulus bill. Politics I don't something. understand why the Republicans didn't push through a stimulus bill in the summer. Because I feel like if they had stimulated the economy... Well, it's weird. They There's flirted. A chance that Trump would have won, right? They, they flirted with it early in August, and then your boy McConnell, who had—I don't know if you saw his debate last night, man—he got destroyed. It was your girl was mixing him up. McConnell. <laughs> he was getting the mixed funny thing up. Is I feel like McConnell is super like, like McConnell has somehow been able to take super unpopular positions and not change course. Like he's figured that the Senate is a Senate Majority Leader is a super powerful position in which you can be take super weird minority positions and just be like it wasn't me and what are you gonna do about it you know no, he's, he's more like, like it was me that's basically what he was doing yesterday in the debate like she she was accusing him of doing all this effed up stuff to kentucky and he just sat there and laughed it was like whoa bro you don't even have a response he was like laughing out loud about it well you know the guy the the black guy who was the um attorney general state attorney general of kentucky is a graduate of the mcconnell center was a was a college football player that was handpicked by McConnell and his boys, retrained at the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville, and basically sponsored. I mean, McConnell is like... I think McConnell thinks that the state of Kentucky is his own personal property. I mean, he probably does. I went to Louisville, though, to the University of Louisville to see my friend, and he took me to the McConnell Center, and I saw the funniest thing I've ever seen, which is right outside the doorway of the McConnell Center, the big auditorium there, they have what they call the... Um, they have this giant wall of diversity, and the wall of diversity <laughs> features a picture of Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, uh, what's his name from the Supreme Court? What's his name? You know, the black Target guy. Marshall? The no, 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 the black guy that's currently on the Supreme Court. Oh, Clarence? Clarence. Um, oh, and Senator Robert Byrd. And this is their, their wall of diversity of opinions. And yeah. I was like, oh, this is telling us everything we need to know about McConnell. Yeah, and he's like, I know some black people. I got some good black friends. Yeah, and I got one Democratic friend who yeah. used to be a grand wizard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
He was I, a reformer. I was to say, I'm not black. I'm not anti-black. Like, like your boy Lindsey Graham told us recently, right? When Lindsey was like, uh, what did he say? A young, a young African-American man can go anywhere in this state. Immigrants too, as long as they're conservative. Oh, wow. I mean, Lindsey is just, Lindsey's getting mixed up too by Jamie Harrison. It's a tight, it's a tight Senate race. So time. I think Lindsey's going to lose. Honestly, you want to hear my predictions? McConnell's going to win. Lindsey's going to lose. That would be hilarious if South Carolina has two black senators. I think it might happen. I think we might get a black Democrat and a black Republican. I think Lindsey's in serious trouble. Seriously. Um, I do. Lindsey, I think, is pretty unpopular at this moment in South Carolina. Well, because people have basically decided that he's easier to defeat and more important to defeat than uh, McConnell. I mean, he raised $85 million in like a week or some crazy shit like that. Something nuts. Like people, and it's like 99% outside money. Like that money's not coming from there. It's not coming from South Carolina, right? It's coming from New York. It's I mean, I guess that's the, dang, that's the weakness, though, that Harrison must have, too, though, at the same time. It's the, like, I guess he has that problem where he could have a little bit of the Beto effect. Where it's well, like a and, lot of outside money. And how much trickle-down effect is there going to be from whatever hijinks the Republicans are going to try to pull at the polls? Right? Like, what is their... Oh, I mean, clearly, Graham now has no uh, incentive to have any polling, any voting. Yeah, exactly. So there's that's going to be his big problem. You know, in South Carolina, you know, they they, they might have invented poll, poll intimidation <laughs> over there. So I don't think there's a... Because there were... There were... Though, something interesting is happening where you're seeing maybe some of the southern states becoming relatively progressive compared to a lot of the rest of the country, right? Like... Like, South Carolina arguably maybe isn't the worst place to be an African-American today. Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know. How do, we, how, do we, how do we judge this? I mean, definitely not if you judge by income and, like, uh, life expectancy. Like, how, how are we judging this, these things? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> I've been judging these things by being in L.A. and seeing a lot of African-Americans jump out of Maseratis. But I don't know if that's, like, a really helpful indicator either. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that might be a little recency bias. You know, recency bias. Yeah, yeah, you know. Sometimes you gotta just put out anecdotes. You know, what I mean, you can't you can't get tied into the into the weed into the mud. Oh, I also finished reading the Yellow House. Oh, how was that? You've been talking about it. Did it give you flashbacks of growing up in the East as a as a uh, what exurban? Do we are we calling the East an exurb? I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> I feel like the East was like half the city. I mean, what was interesting about this book is, I guess, I had never really read a book about New Orleans East before. And she makes this point that there's, like, not actually much writing about the East. So she tells us that in the 60s, when the, the East was developed actually by a single company, which I had no idea about. And she says it was the largest land development project of its time. And, you know, it was classically supposed to be a white neighborhood that was going to feed into the growth of NASA, you know, the movement of the poor. It was supposed to be the economic future for the city. Yeah, I mean, there's a very good book that I assume you've read before that does talk about it to some extent. It talks more about what what we used to be called the East, but, uh, you know, Gentilly and and what's past Franklin, Mm. uh, the the moviegoer, right? Mm. I've never seen that. I've never read that. It's a very good book. And he talks about the expansion of the city and what it's like to be in the suburb and, like, the open space and all that stuff and how it's different than being in the city. You should check it out. It's from New Orleans. So you get a lot of that, and I guess in this book, you know, the movement from, like, I guess, mid-city out to the east, what it was like, you know, this experience of moving over, like, a generation. Um, it was interesting for me because I grew up so on Dowman, and, you know, but Dowman closer to Lake Pontchartrain. And I guess I realized that, like, maybe I didn't know very much about the Chef Mentor side, you know, and, like, I never really, like, I drove on Chef Mentor a thousand times, right, going further east, but... 
it was it, it was kind of disorienting to have a book centered on a place that's clearly so close to where you grew up, but feeling so far away. Well, Chef Mentor was definitely a lot more industrial um, than like it wasn't a residential area, but there are there is housing that's like very close to it. It's like a block or yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. So she was talking about you know these like. They lived in an area, it was a mixed-use area next to a trailer park, and there's only three or four houses on their street, Wilson, the short end of the street. But the book really, I mean, in the beginning, I was like, the book is super slow. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is still going on. But then but then the book kind of gets you about like two-thirds of the way in when it becomes sort of about Katrina and this question of like, I guess the kind of classic question, like what was the nature of the disaster of Katrina? And like you get this idea, I think she does a really good job, even if it's a little painful at times, of discussing the idea that Katrina was such a climatic event for the city because of the disasters that had already happened. They might have been slow and you might not have seen it, but you know, there was a long-term process that made Katrina possible to be to have the impact that it would, especially for African Americans in the city. I mean, it was transformational. It's completely changed the city. I mean, New Orleans had the first housing projects in the entire nation. They started it here. Right. They, they they were well positioned. You know, you remember where they were. They're three uptown. Yeah, yeah. And they were in some of the best parts of the city. Downtown, you know, great, great areas next to, you know, and after Katrina, there's literally no housing projects anymore. And anyone that grew up in New Orleans know how how much the jets, you know, for like the bricks, however you want to put it, for lack of a better term, influenced the culture of the city and how many people, frankly, live there and who live there. Um, I mean, it's very noticeable nowadays. Um, clearly, a lot of people. Have, have been have been forced out and forced to relocate. I've always said it would be very interesting to do uh, like a like a genetic an- analysis of that because most of those people had never lived here in like hundreds of years if you think about it. And then like, for the first time ever, now they're like they were shipped off to like Atlanta and Houston mostly and told, "Sorry, you can't come back. There's nowhere for you to live. Hope you make it." I think the data that we've seen seems to say that they are doing better out of New Orleans. So make what you want out of that. Um, you know. But, yeah, she talks about that. A lot of people in her family went to uh, uh, Northern California and immediately got jobs of a type that they weren't able to get in New Orleans. And she also talks about the idea that the East was in some ways written out of the New Orleans imagination. You know, it was a way in which tons of people, you know, basically served kind of the French Quarter, the downtown, the tourist economy, but they were the invisible part that like well, because no one given the credit. Because you you grow up in the East, you live in the East, but no one goes to the East. I mean, like, like you. Like, I mean, I guess I went to school always in other parts of the city, right? From elementary school onwards. Well, I started off I in also elementary. crossed the bridge. Yeah, I started off taking elementary school in the East, but I quickly moved to the other side of the bridge. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. and it's like I never played at the kids' houses. Like you know, all the kids that went to that school, they all played together because they lived close. Like no one ever came to my house. I mean, occasionally, but it's very rare, right? And mm-hmm. I had a pool. I had a big backyard. You further out than Osborne, right? I mean, Osborne, I guess, was technically a little bit closer. In. Sure, but I mean, we're talking about like 10 more minutes and for five more minutes of driving. It's not like that's serious. And it's like on a straight street. And it's on a straight street. It's not like you're making turns or it's hard to find. Like, I'm literally, my house is literally like five minutes off the interstate, right? Mm-hmm. So if you took the interstate, you can get to my. I live cent- you know, in the middle of the city right now, and I could get to my parents' house in 15 minutes easy. That's from. I guess that's what's weird is that. It felt, in the imagination, the East feels really far away, but it's actually not that far away. New Orleans is actually, like, when you come to a place like L.A., you're like, New Orleans is actually not that big a place. Like, no, not the places that people live in. Not that. Yeah, if you start, like, counting, like, the, the wildlife park and all that stuff, then, you know, 
Then it, yeah, then it gets kind of big, but like we don't really count that. That's not real. I mean, that's not really part of the city. But it was an interesting reflection. I mean, it was just interesting to see the city from a way that maybe I wouldn't normally even think about it, even as someone who grew up in the East. Well, because as you know, the East was very striated too. There was like this up and coming middle class part of the East. There was, for lack of a better term, like the fishing camp, you know, slash uh, whiter, let's say, part of the East over there. Um, and shit, we oh, had. Yeah, there was Lakeview. No, not Lakeview. What was that place called? Eastover. Like private school. Oh, oh, Lake Castle. Lake Castle. Lake Castle. Yeah, not let's forget about that. There were also like an all-white school in the middle of an all-black neighborhood. <laughs> right? Private school for like... That was always highly amusing to me. Yeah, that actually produced pretty decent students, but it was like all-white and Asian kids, like no black kids. I don't know anyone black that ever went there. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly a white fortress. Yeah, I, I think I went to uh, summer camp there one year for like two weeks, and they like were so racist to me and my brother, they just like pulled us out. <laughs> uh, well, let's finish off. I got one final question. Do you think... Do you have any predictions for the election? Dum dum dum. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a 99.9999% chance that Biden wins the popular vote. Like, what else? So you're super confident in the popular vote. I mean, oh, yeah. Biden's definitely going to win the popular vote. I just, I'll say that. I bet the house on that one. I'm not worried about that. I mean, Trump's not even trying to win the popular vote. So I was also looking at and actually playing with. So I, I tried to recreate. I got a little bored yesterday. So I was looking at, uh, I've been watching Nate Silver and those guys at 538, their podcast. And I, so I played with his model and tweaked it a little bit because there's some things that he's he says he's not accounting for and he thinks you shouldn't account for, such as like election malfeasance and stuff like that. And okay, so I'm not worried about that. No, no. So I did something where I just looked at the historical rates of error in mail-in voting per state and then weighted the percentage of votes by that, I think, in each state. And if you do that, it goes from being Trump at about 15%. 15 out of 100 times he'll win and Biden 85 to 100 to something like 46-54. Still in Biden's favor, though. But Trump... So it's pretty close. It's it's close. Biden's in the lead, though. He's definitely... He's in the lead for both. And I think... But what if he gets, like... I guess what if Trump is able to, like, boost the rate of electoral malfeasance by, like, 7-8% from a historic average? If he can do it in the right places, we're probably in some big trouble. I mean, honestly. I just... I really hope there's... I mean, honestly, it seems increasingly likely that the real election is happening in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. It, it seems like that's the most important state. That's what it's looking like more and more, just like last time. I don't know why, but it, it is. Um, and so it's going to depend on the ground game there, man. I, I really think so. I mean, I, I've seen some Democratic maps where they're saying Biden's going to get 500. I don't see it. Like, I really don't. Um, you know, in those maps... I thought the 538 map is like 279 or something like that. What do you mean? Like 279 electoral votes or something like that. Well, the way they present it actually is a cluster. They show all the possibilities. So they show like mm. like 100 simulations, basically, mm. and, like, and like where they fall on the map. And I think the last time they had it, 85 of them were for pro-Biden and 15 of them were Trump. Mm. But I guess you're, you're raising a good point. I mean, electoral malfeasance, I think, is definitely a real factor. And I guess it's what puts Trump within shooting distance. Correct. And he seems like... I feel like he definitely has people on it because he doesn't seem nervous enough yet. Mm. I mean, he came out last night, you know, he's doing, still doing rallies. He's like, man, I'm a pop star, not a doctor. <laughs> you know? I mean, that is the one thing I have to give my man Drake. Just when I thought, I thought he had fallen off this year. I thought this hasn't been a particularly great year for Drake. But, I mean, a Tootsie Sly was kind of lame. I thought that was a, sh a sign of weakness. 
But he came back with I'm a pop star, not a doctor. When I first heard it, I was like, what is this? This is nonsense. <clears throat> but then as the COVID thing has this dragged on and on, and then as Trump, I was like, wow, Drake captured the political moment because Trump is out here like I'm a pop star, not a doctor. It really is. And he kind of is doing the, uh, your little theory, the Joe Biden skin suit thing, where he's got like the black guy pretending he's Justin Bieber. So he's <laughs> like, I couldn't really do this without a Bieber face, you know? <laughs> So when I hear it, I think about you saying, you know, Biden's really just, uh, you know, Obama playing Weekend at Bernie's kind of, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that's definitely happening, too, right? Where Obama <laughs> is like, oh, shit. And you see it in the Drake. That's, that's one of the funniest parts of the Drake video where he's like, he's turning to Chubbs and he's like, I can't go back out there one more time. Can't I got to call my boy up. <laughs> yeah, and, and frankly, he's there. like, I can't because people keep blowing up my phone, man. Like, he's like, man, fucking every day. Khaled, like every day with this crap. I can't do it. I'm just trying to chill on the island, you know? We're <laughs> <laughs> trying to smoke a smoothie. Yeah. Come on. And the people love it, right? I mean, the people want a beeper face. And maybe that's what it is about Biden, right? Biden was able to go to the old folks in the villages and these nursing homes and be like, it's me, it's Joe. <laughs> and I think he, I mean, listening to these guys and girls that I've been talking to or men and women that I've been talking to in the tech scene out here in California are like, it's stressful because these people don't want to pay no taxes, right? You need the, you need the beaver face of Biden maybe to give them a little bit of reassurance. Yeah, I and like I think you need someone like Biden to be like, look, man, you can make money, you can pay taxes and everyone's fine, you make more money. They just need some old guy to tell them that it's, it's safe. Because right now, all the old heads are telling them, no, you don't want to pay taxes. That's the other thing oh, I wanted to bring up, too, before we go, is that's the, that's the big secret that no one wants to talk about in our you know professional circles, is everyone's got like a money manager or financial manager, and they're all trying to minimize our, your taxes. And so like everyone's being coached, right, like directly and subliminally that taxes are bad and like that you're paying for people whose expertise is to minimize your taxes. There's a, literally a whole industry about this. So in your brain, you're like, well, maybe if taxes were just lower, I wouldn't have to pay this asshole to make them lower. They'd just be lower. Or maybe you're like, I'm paying this asshole the part that I could be paying my taxes, and now I definitely can't pay my taxes because I'm paying all these assholes. Exactly, you know? <laughs> you're like, I'm paying the accountant. I'm paying the money manager. I'm paying this private banker who keeps trying to give me tickets to like Shoney's or whatever the nice Shoney's is. And I'm like, fuck's sake, guys. And they also told me to buy this massive house that I can't really afford because I need to take some losses. And you're like, yeah, they keep telling me I don't have enough money, but they also keep telling me I need to spend more money. Spend more money. They're like, maybe you need to move to Puerto Rico. But I'm like, I can't work in Puerto Rico. So now I'm flying back and forth between Puerto Rico and L.A. It's like, what the hell is going on? Why, why, why am I in this life? Why am I in this life? Though I was on kayak the other day and I was like, oh, I could rent a private jet for 26000 And you're kind of like, this is a crazy world where you can just get your private jet off kayak. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, I guess we're in the kayak world, right? Flying taxis, private jets. Um, you're right. The economy is being supported by people uh, that you pay to stretch you out. Heat lamps. Yeah, it's like but you got I mean, it. You got it or you don't got it. Like, you um, still, can you still buy off Amazon? Are you still taking flights? Basically, people just look at you and they're like, are you somebody who takes flights? Like, were, yeah, you in, yeah. were you in Big Sur last weekend or not? You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's causing all this stress. But anyway, we'll talk to you guys next time. See you. What's up? I mean, we still got to get to our uh, data privacy pod eventually. Yeah, let's do that. Next all right. time. Talk to you. All right. Peace. Bye.